Circular Firing Squad. I'm Marty Jensius, a counseling faculty at Kent State University and host for Circular Firing Squad. It's a big group. They almost all don't fit on the screen. We've got seven members, seven questions, and seven answers for each question. Questions are generated from each squad member and run from the thoughtful to the trivial. Let's see who all is with us tonight. Hi, all. Uh, Eric Perry, clinical faculty at Southern New Hampshire University. Steph Martyr, doctoral candidate at Kent State University, practicing clinical counselor, co-host, grad school deconstructed. Uh, Elliot Ingersoll, um, professor at Cleveland State University and host of Apply Topically. Hey, Jen Cook, associate professor, University of Texas at San Antonio. Hey, everybody. Mitch Conrad, second-year graduate student in clinical mental health counseling at Cleveland State University. Gina Martin, assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. Eric, you're up with the first question. All right. So what movie or video should every aspiring counselor watch? I think you can make a case for so many different movies. Now, one, I mean, one that's suggested to me that I just haven't geared up enough to watch and maybe I'm not aspiring anymore and that's okay since I am a counselor um but ordinary people mm. I think is one that probably would be really great and on the other end of the spectrum just for more fun perspective I also use the opening of Breakfast Club to talk about parental uh relationships attachment styles that people have with with their parents so i think that's what i'll start off with today i would definitely say equus why me such standing equus first account for me we used to use it in personality theory when we were we would just pillage that thing for psychodynamic illusions and theory it was a hoot a lot of students said they were traumatized by it but the damage was all done with puppets so I'm going to have to go with a series because I'm, I think you all know I'm not a huge movie person. I used to be, and I racked my brain of like movies I've watched and I really couldn't grab on. However, I want to go with the Dexter series. Um, I feel like if you um, are an aspiring counselor and you can empathize in some way with every single character who shows up on that show, including Dexter and including the baddie played by John Lithgow, then you're probably cut out for this profession. Yeah, my mind kind of immediately went to, you know, because I don't watch uh, as much movies or, or TV, um, kind of went to documentaries, kind of like macro level documentaries, sociological documentaries, documentaries about poverty, documentaries about like um, where sometimes I think we're we're not focused like as a profession we are less macro focused as as somewhere like sociology and so like looking at like bigger picture issues there was one recent uh movie that i did watch and i can't remember if i talked about this on a previous episode but it was one flew over the cuckoo's nest and i think that especially as we're getting into you know now the 20 you know mid 2020s holy smokes um i think it's there's going to be more uh, importance to go back and to look at and be aware of some of like the institutionalized history, um, especially where, you know, 
that there's going to be 50, 60, 70, 80 years of separation from this kind of stuff now. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed that movie. That was something recent that I saw that, that I really enjoyed, I guess. I'm shocked no one has mentioned um, all those educational videos from the 80s. I think those are a particular favorite of mine for the good old cringe factor. Um, additionally, in addition to all of those fabulous um, educational videos, I think that Goodwill Hunting is one of my personal favorites. Um, just for the idea of like taking responsibility for oneself and their life, um, and just the overall concept of what counseling can be. So that would be mine. Are you talking about the coronet educational films from the, you know, like what to do on a first date, things like that, Gina? Oh, you know it. <laughs> I used to work training volunteers on a drug crisis line answering the phone. And I remember a couple of our end of the season parties or end of the training parties at the center I would get coronet films and show them and tell them these are training films and people would just riff them. We just tell jokes along the way and have a great time with it. Um, I didn't go for the heart tugging, heart string tugging sort of films that are kind of popularized versions of what counseling should be. I went with more conceptual things. And the one that came to mind really was Experimenter which is a film about Stanley Milgram's life and his, you know, obedience to authority. And I think, it, you know, basic counselors probably never heard of him. If you think of the people that enter our field, they might not have heard of, of him. But the importance of power and obedience to power in our society and how people equate that, it's a great film. People should watch it anyways. But it's not just the the obedience to authority studies that are in there. He also does a, a lot more social experiments like the six degrees of separation, where you give somebody a letter and send it to someone that you know in that part of the world, and then they send it to someone that they know in that part of the world, and eventually the letter will get to the person. And then other kinds of things like standing, uh, facing backwards in an elevator and just see how people react to it because you're violating social norms. Or standing on a major street and looking up at a tall building and just stopping and staring and see how many people walk by and stop it to see what you're looking at. It's just all the whole concept of social control and how it fits in, I think, is, is meaningful for counselors. Second is A Dangerous Method, which is sort of a biohistoric film of about Jung and Phil, uh, Jung and uh, Carl Jung and 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 Freud, and sort of their life. It came out I don't know four or five years ago. Well acted, and and well directed, and an interesting interesting slice of life for those folks. Yeah, I'm always hunting for new media. I, I think something I like a lot is is to integrate that as a part of my courses. And one thing I, I play every time is the Mad TV skit with Bob Newhart to stop it video every first techniques class, right? Everybody who wants to give advice needs to watch that video. Um, but there are others too that I really like, and some of them got mentions here. And there's a lot of talk in the chat about goodwill hunting. Um, I think split is one that everybody should watch. 
uh, if anything, just for James McAvoy, right? Total appreciation for him and what he was able to do there. Um, there were a couple others that I wrote down too um, that I think there's a lot of references to or you can do a lot with. Um, one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a great example, a more classic. Silver Linings Playbook uh, is one that I've seen used here and there. Um, there's just, there's tons out there. Um, but I think the one that I, I always use all the time is that stop it video because I always have this issue with counselors coming in thinking they're I give the best advice and you might but how often is it actually followed how you know how helpful is that and it starts that conversation down the road to theory so I really like that as an opener um, those are the things I'm more drawn to the glory videos are tons of fun not practical but I really love to see Fritz um kind of in his groove and how much Gloria hates it the entire time. Um, just it, it's fun from a historical perspective. And I think it can lead to those conversations about what modern theory and practice looks like. Um, so they can be kind of fun from that perspective, but I appreciate everybody sharing. All right. So on to the next question, which is how do you go about getting rid of an earworm? Yeah, I got a proven one for you. Works every time. It's uh comes up in cartoons. I think it's in public domain. It's called Powerhouse. Bum 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 ba da ba da bum 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 ba da ba da bum bum. And if you can't find that, go with Lavia Strangiato. Uh, it's on fourth song on the Hemispheres album by Rush. They incorporate the rig the riff into the song. I think the antidote to one song that keeps running around is to like add more music to the mix. That's always my way of going about this. And I'll put on a completely different genre, typically. Uh, plug in Pandora, Apple Music or whatever, and just start listening to different things. What I've noticed, though, is if I'm in an earworm state of mind, that's just what's going to happen, y'all. Like, I'm going to pick up something else and I'll be humming along to that all day. So I think you're just going to play the day away, you know, and pick the song you want to sing all day because I don't know, maybe I'm just a weirdo that it's an earworm kind of day. And so I have to keep singing a song all day long. So I try to get something in there that I want to hear rather than, you know, the wheels on the bus go round and round or whatever else inane shit that could get stuck in my head that I don't want to be singing. Yeah, I, this is, this is a toughie for me. My solution and it like personally for me has only been to replace the earworm with another earworm. Um, I have a, a lovely family who knew that my least favorite song of all time was uh, all about that bass um, there's just something about it. I just can't, I can't do it. And I, I saw this question come up and I'm not saying it's your fault stuff. I'm not, but now that song has been stuck in my head as an earworm <laughs> all day. And really it's, it's totally just like, totally <laughs> I'm just hearing no trouble. I mean, sorry. Now it, it's here. Sorry. It's it. It's it. And it's that kind of song. And I just like, I, there's just something I can't, I can't get with that song. Um, so I'm, Always looking for ways to, hey, just what's another song that I want to play right now ad nauseum for the next two hours that I can replace the earworm with because um, I got to get all about that bass out of my head. I I hate it, too, and I'm a bass player. I hear you. For me, I, I like to listen to the song that is the earworm, and uh, sometimes that helps and sometimes it doesn't. But I find that if I if I do that, then it turns into that earworm kind of day and I will belt it out and I will sing it and I will sing along and I will have Millie singing along and it's a whole thing. 
Um, and I think that that usually does help because then you get so sick of it that you have to try something else. Um, Mitch, Mitch and I agree that I just, the best way to get rid of an earworm is to go to another earworm. Whereas he seems to be much more strategic about it. I just kind of accept that I'm going to float to the next thing. Um, it's going to happen. Something's going to trigger it. And that song will be stuck in my head until the next earwig or ear earworm. Or what is it? Earwig or earworm? They're both. They're, they're synonymous. They're both the same. Okay. Well, as the, the next earwig comes along, I mentioned before the show that over the break, I've been watching a lot of Mystery Science Theater 3000, and that theme song is um, is stuck in my head. And I, it will be stuck in my head probably for a while till something else comes along. Um, I won't attempt to sing it for you, but uh, it it is a catchy little tune. And, uh, and I, I've got to get it out of my head someday, and something will come along and replace it. Mystery Science Theater 3000. I don't know. I always need a musical palate cleanser, right? Like I need to go back to stuff that I really like. And I think that that helps, but I don't fight it that hard either. I, I like, I have friends that I don't think I've had full conversations with in years that our entire um, scope of our friendship is song lyrics and movie quotes. That's what we spend the entirety of our time doing. Um, so I don't, I, I don't try to fight it that hard, but I will pass it along. And I feel like if you pass it to somebody else, it helps share that pain, right? So there's something cathartic about that. You take the chain letter approach. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> share this with nine people or else you will never, ever get the song out of your head. Um, yeah. I think when I came up with this, it I was in a difficult spot because... I had an earworm, but I couldn't figure out what it belonged to. And usually oftentimes what happens in this is after years, sometimes maybe, you know, a while Spotify will put onto my random song, something I'm like, and I know like, right. I'm like, that's it. That's it. Okay. Phew. That's like with the ones that I, I can't get out of my head, but I can't place now uh, to the other one things that are catchy that I hear I'm with Gina and I have to just play it out. Um, Cause the thing is I will want to play it over and over and over again. And all of a sudden it just becomes less fun, but you know, for like at least two days straight, it's like all that's happening in my head is the song most recently um, shiny by it from Moana um, Tamatoa who also, it also happened to be, I try not to put Bowie into everything, but I was listening to the song and I'm like, they're trying to be Bowie like, and I looked it up and it was true. So um, that's probably why it got stuck in my head. So for such a long time. Well, I do have to say this right quick. So let's just say that a couple of weeks ago, I happened to have maybe an old episode of who's the boss playing in the background one afternoon and I remember the episode distinctly. I don't, you know, you don't have to watch Who's the Boss to know what's going on on Who's the Boss. And, you know, they cut Angela comes back because she dressed like a teenager and they end up, she and Tony dance in the living room. I could not figure out the song and I grabbed my phone to Shazam it and it was gone too quickly. 
So I start trying to like, and I only know par parts of the lyrics because it's an 80s song, which means I probably remembered parts of the lyrics wrong because I was like seven or eight years old when the song came out, right? So I can't find it. I'm humming it to everybody I know. They have no idea what I'm what I'm talking about. And I finally found it. It was Joe Jackson stepping out. But uh, okay. anyway, dun, 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 dun. that's for <laughs> me to you. All right. Uh, if your current or former counseling program were an animal, what would it be? You know, I don't know. I have to tell you, I sat around and thought about this for way too long. You know, I don't think too much about these questions until we're on the show. But this one, you had me stumped. Um, and I, I landed, <laughs> I feel like such a cliche. I landed on dolphins um number one because they're like my animal but number two because you know they tend to go in pods but they can also be independent it's very metaphorical you know but you know some people in there are hungry like the wolf as well but i didn't think a wolf really worked for all of us but i figured if i slip in some song lyrics here maybe we can test out our earworm theories like how musically inclined everybody is tonight um i think in, ter in terms I was thinking of a couple. Um, we've got a lot of inside jokes about capybaras, uh, and also the. But the other one that I was thinking of was like, uh, I, I just went with a, a platypus, and I went with a platypus because it feels like uh, platyp. Platy I, I don't know what the plural of of platypus is, but a platypus um, is very. Uh, you know, they they kind of like to to be just kind of left to themselves and just you know. I feel like it's nice that we're a little separate from the rest of the college and the rest of the university. We've kind of got our own little, uh, based on like location at Cleveland State, like like most of the college is on the west side of the campus and we're on the east side of campus. We kind of get to like, you know, keep to ourselves a little bit, you know, kind of just enjoy our own company. I feel like, you know, I feel like we could be a platypus. So this one for me was really easy because I, this past week I just swam with manatees which was a really cool experience. And so I'm going the water route, like Jen, um, our, our group would be manatees and they're underwater. We are really busy because we are short staffed. So we have just this, uh, underwater, like we're going through everything. We're eating the grass. We're doing the thing. We're rolling on our back. We all stick together. Um, that's kind of where we're at. So we would be, a, and I, I looked it up. It's an aggregate of manatees too bad it's not a murder of manatees it's almost alliterative would have been cool would have been cool the plural of platypus is they um it works go with it um i had a really hard time with this question i i looked at the questions beforehand and i left this one blank up until when we started recording the show and i i don't i I like the places I've worked. And so it was hard to pick something that fit well. So I raised the question to Google, what's the most versatile animal? Because I think the places I've worked, the people who there are very versatile. And then which one is the best surviving um, animal? And they came up with an old friend of mine called the tardigrade. Um, the tardigrade is this very, very half millimeter type size little water flea that has, you know, been in the International Space Station. There are ones on the moon that were probably put there. 
Um, and I actually worked with them when I was a kid as a science project. They survive dehydration really well. And so you can dry them out, you know, they're and wet them back up and they start moving again. So program, I'm sure my program would not be happy to be called the Kent State Tardigrades, uh, but uh, that's the animal I came up with. I, don't know, I took this question in a different direction. I was thinking about my experience as a master's student. Um, so I was thinking about that program in particular, and uh, possum was what came to mind for me. And I'll explain why. Like, you start, and there was just this fear. I don't know, for me, I was first generation, right? Nobody's taken this step in my family before, so I didn't have any context. So I was terrified to begin with, and it felt like, does anybody remember the movie Major Pain? Mm -hmm. It felt like that was the, my my first semester was three people talking at me in that very same way. And I just left sweating every classroom. And then, you know, kind of got my feet under me and, and started to like really get into it. And then they, they just kind of roll over and play dead. You know, all, all that fear, all that kind of scariness that went into the beginning, whether that was me or them playing the possum, uh, it turned out to be like this really supportive, really positive experience so it, it you know seemed scary but you know the reaction wasn't wasn't the same so possum came to mind for me um thinking about that program eric have you seen the positive possum meme i, I feel like i need to i feel like i'm about to send you like 19 of them so get ready <laughs> i'm ready <laughs> oh i love the positive possum all right, I'll wait for the rest. <laughs> you have to send these to all of us now. Group chat. They're coming for you. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess my first thought was a flounder. Um, kind of because you it starts off one way and it has a specific shape and movement to it. And then over time, it completely goes on its side so to speak um and and looks different and it it's just a kind of a different animal not good or bad just different so it was something that changed um i was going between that or a chameleon or something but for some reason flounder just yeah maybe because okay i'll just leave it there flounder <laughs> <laughs> It, this was funny because this question came from a playful uh, place. And then I started going through my email today. And the image I got was our the program reminds me of a cheetah with an administrative bear trap snapped on one of its legs. Wow. <laughs> All right. Too much. Suddenly, <laughs> suddenly the Kent State tardigrades sounds pretty good. What's that? There's a flea in the hole and the boot on the something in the bottom of the sea. All right. Um, are bargain airlines worth the savings? I gosh, I think I flew Spirit once and I wasn't impressed. Um, I, I think it's like Spirit and Frontier, kind of the big two. It's actually like a really appropriate question because I'm booking a flight like today or tomorrow. So and I'm thinking about which airline to use. Sometimes to me, it's just kind of the convenience about not having to like say, hey, I need to jump on with an extra bag. And I just would prefer to just, hey, I'm just going to spend the extra however much money to 
put my Delta ticket in and not worry about it or whatnot. But um, I feel like there's a lot of, I feel like there's a lot of money that can be saved, especially if you can pack light or if you have like clothes or other uh, like essentials at the place where you happen to be going. I'm thinking of like most of my visits are to family members. Um, so I feel like I could save more money in there if I was more intentional and I really thought about it, but I don't know. It's something about those airlines does scare me a little bit. I feel like, I feel like I'm kind of flying on a paper airplane. At least that's the feeling that I got last time. And so I, I'm not sure if I, I'm not sure if I dig that as much. Yeah. My answer is absolutely not. No way. Under no circumstance. Just no. Um, call me bougie, but I really, really appreciate consistency. I really appreciate getting to my location. I have flown a number of times on ye old bargain airlines that will remain unnamed. And I've spent a number of nights on an airport floor feeling grimy, feeling gross. And I think that I will save money elsewhere. Um, Recently, I also flew back from Florida with uh, my whole family and my dog. And so we were quite the crew, you know, coming through the airport with this petrified dog that is supposed to be the service animal. And we've got the five-year-old who is like crying and begging for every like fried pretzel and, you know, McDonald's and whatever, all of the things in the airport. And we had a connecting flight for like an hour and a half because I tried to save a couple hundred dollars. And let me just tell you what I wouldn't give to get those hours back. So I, my answer is absolutely not. Never. Well, I've got to say, uh, if your, your service animal is petrified in an airport that needs to go back for some retraining, I think, um, we've just heard from two people who, uh, are not 300 pounds. Um, I'm 300 pounds. I, uh, the answer to the question, uh, do are bargain airlines worth the savings? No, not at all. Just ask Alaskan airlines. Uh, I was booking an airline for a trip out to Portland coming up in a couple of weeks and, um, had the option to fly Alaskan before the whole, we're going to suck the door out of the, out of the airplane. Uh, incident that occurred a couple of days ago. I almost went with Alaskan and I said, no, I'm just going to play it safe and I'm going to go with United. Um, and I know I'll get there. I know it'll cost me more. Um, I know what seat I'm getting. I know, I know a lot of things about it. I flew Frontier about five years ago when Aileen and I went to Phoenix. Um, and But the thing was, the bargain was offset by all the upgrades that we paid um, to wipe out uh, the savings that we had so we could have extended leg room, et cetera, et cetera. Only flew Southwest once in my life in the encouragement of a doc student and regretted it. Um, and, you know, the cattle lanes that we had to at the time, you know, you get your letter and you get in line and no, uh, bargain airlines are not worth the savings. Okay. So I'm going to be honest. Um, I'll throw the kids and, and the wife and the family in the van and, and we'll drive if we have to, right? If a flight is a necessity though, uh, you know, I'm six, two, 300 ish pounds. I, I don't fit well into a bargain seat. 
Um, you know, and, and I have long legs and fairly tall. It's just not comfortable for me. I'll spend the extra money. Uh, the point that I was going to make was the same as Marty. I spend the upgrade fees on the bargain flights that equal a, a, just a more comfortable flight on a major airline. So really for me, it's kind of a push anyway. Um, if it's an hour flight, hour and a half flight, well, I'll rough it. But if it's any longer than that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be miserable for two days afterwards anyway. It's just not worth it. And not anymore. Not anymore. You know, as a teenager, early 20s, yes. And then, you know, you, you start to realize all those convenient things that make traveling tolerable are worth it. And the older I get, the more I'm like, nope, let's upgrade. Let's go here, whatever. Because I am not a tall person. And I find regular airline seats to be too small. So even with something like Delta, I'm still trying to get like the the slightly upgraded with a little bit more leg room and everything. So I don't even know what to do if you were taller. You'd, you know, just charter a plane. Probably take care of everything. Yeah, you know, I mean, for me flying, it's like being in prison. The only difference is the altitude and the time served. So it's not a pleasant thing to begin with. And then as a time traveler from the 20th century, when I compare my first flight in the 1980s with my most recent one in the 21st century, I'm appalled. I am just appalled. So I've, I've yeah, I've never even looked into bargain stuff because I'm like, yeah, I'm, I got a lot of structural issues and I just, I'm going to be miserable anyway. I may as well have a nice seat. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't planning on talking about the changes, but you know, I remember when I was a kid and the very we didn't fly very often. Most of the time it was we got in the car, but I remember the times we flew in the 80s and it, you'd put on your Sunday best to go to the airport and to fly on an airplane and it was like this event. Now, I mean, even on non-discounted carriers, it is crazy. It's pandemonium. This question comes from the fact that, you know, I like to be able to take my mom on trips when I can. Um, and she is all about a deal. And <laughs> thank God she didn't listen to this podcast. But she believes a deal is airlines like Allegiant that doesn't, you know, you have to pay to put a bag in the overhead compartment. The only thing that's free is what slides under the seat in front of you. And she got this little Samsonite suitcase. It's about this by this that slides under the seat in front of her. However, you can't have a pocketbook. You can't have a wall. I mean, you can't carry anything else with you except what's on your person. And so she ends up layering all of these clothes on her body. She got these cargo pants just to fly on Allegiant where she can fit the book she's reading, her wallet, a bottle of water. No joke. Like you see this woman at security. She is unloading for 10 minutes, taking all of this stuff out of her pockets. And I'm always like, Ma, don't you want to get where you're going? Now, some way, ironically, she has never gotten delayed on Allegiant. There's a direct flight from Tampa to San Antonio. She doesn't get delayed. She loves it. She's, I love them. They're so funny. And I'm like, look, that is not the Dave Chappelle show at 25,000 feet. I don't need it, right? So she just keeps insisting on these discount airlines. I've talked about how Delta loyal I am and like, they're on my last nerve right now with changing their policies with their frequent flyer program, to be completely honest with you. Um, and I missed the next status up for, by 461 miles this year. So I, I'm not all all too impressed by them at the moment. But look, 
I'm six feet tall. I'm only 170 pounds and trying to stuff my ass into a normal size seat is just not going to happen. And I'm certainly not be flying in the lawn chairs of Frontier and Spirit. So yeah, Gina, I guess I'm bougie just like you, even though I got no reason to be, <laughs> but I am except for being six feet and not want to be smashed into a seat. Because I'll tell you, I was in Taurus on United when I came for my interview here, and there were permanent dent marks from people's knees in the seat back pocket in front of me. And I understand it now because that's where my knees spent Boston to Houston. Shout out as well to Delta's cookies. I just feel like I need to mention that. I love the Biscoff cookies. All right. Uh, calling all hot takes or non-hot takes, what, in your opinion, is the most underrated counseling theory? So I'm happy I get to start this one off. I feel like every graduate student that I have taught and that I have met and interacted with always hates on psychodynamic theory. And it is one of my favorites, if not my favorite. And I think that it gets such a bad reputation because of Freud and everything else. And it has a lot of myths and thoughts and fantasies, if you will, about it. And I think that there's a lot of merit in looking at people's backgrounds and their upbringing and some of the subconscious stuff that goes on. So that would be mine. Thank you, Gina. Um, you, uh, you stole my theory. Um, I would say psychodynamic also and, and object relations. Um, and both of those get uh, shit on because of uh, Freud. And most of our textbooks don't give them justice either. Uh, they talk about it like it uh, doesn't have any meaning. But then when you sit and talk to students about how they're conceptualizing clients or how they're interacting with clients, all they talk about is basically psychodynamic drive theory principles. And it's like, uh, you know, you're speaking this way. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. I didn't mean that. It's like, well, you are. And um, that's okay. You know, I... It's funny because we have, you know, in the same field, in the same general area, um, regionally, and I've, I've had just different experiences. I've had a, a lot more students come in and say they, they thought they were psychodynamic or thought they knew object relations and start to process and figure out that they're looking at things more in a solution focused way. You know, they're looking at things in a way that fits more of a, a CBT kind of perspective. Um, but they think that there's this heady kind of, I'm going to get the chair and the cigar and smoking jacket. And, you know, if I go with psychodynamic, that makes me this therapist of the stars or whatever. You know, so I, I think the more simplistic theories are the ones that tend to get some flack. Uh, I actually, you know, I could never do it myself, but I think person-centered is a perfectly acceptable way to go. I think it's efficacious. It works. It's helpful. Um, there's a lot of research to support it, but it's not very glamorous. There's not techniques. There's not a lot to hold on to. Um, and it requires a lot of faith in your client and their ability to change. It really puts the onus on them to to make that movement. Um so I think in a lot of ways, it's not very appealing for a lot of students who can potentially do it really well. I had trouble with this. I I don't know. Because I think, you know, I don't. as far as rating, it's different, right? You have the ones that people use most often or tend to use most often that you were all describing in one way or another. 
whether people know that they're using those theories or not. Um, but as far as like, you know, so, so you have like the popular ones or the less popular ones, but are they, well, I, it's hard. Cause like CBT, like Eric was saying, you know, it's kind of like a, it's not mm-hmm. as exciting. I think in some ways, I think it's, it's, it's straightforward, but so is it underrated that way? I don't know, even if it has a lot of efficacy and, and, um, demonstrates, you know, it's usefulness, but I, I, I don't hear a lot of people always going existential and I, I don't know if it's underrated. It's just one that I would like to have people talk about more and maybe use more, um, bringing in some of those broader ideas, but being able to focus them into what they're experiencing in their lives at that time, I think, um, can, can be helpful too. And I think maybe sometimes people are very focused on the specifics about what's going on in clients' lives rather than maybe some of these bigger guiding themes. I, I think that the psychodrama for sure, and for, for as much pearls stole from it, you know, you would think it would just kind of rise by association, but uh, man, I use so much of that. And I blend it a lot with my existential work and we, you know, we do a lot of demos in class and things and they work really well together, but being action oriented and then being able to represent multiple perspectives at the same time and drawing other people into the issue. It's just wonderful. So I, I, I vote for psychodrama. I'm on that same train. of thought Elliot, but I'll go a different way to say reality therapy and gestalt, um, you know, kind of hearkening back to the whole stop it thing. I mean, I think that we're in a cultural moment where people just need to hear to stop it and they need to take control and stop it. Um, so I think this could be very culturally empowering for, for counselors to start grabbing on to gestalt again or reality therapy. I think there's a lot of overlap and similarities with them, um, in terms of empowerment. Um, and in terms of like, let's, let's wipe our eyes kids and let's move forward here and take control of what you can control. And then you'll be able to actually probably engage in larger systemic change that everyone seems to be so excited about. It's like, come on, you're, you're not mentally well enough right now, but take a little control of your own life and then you can start, you know, reformulating everyone else's. Hey, what's the deal with the name of that theory though? Is it reality therapy, control theory, choice theory? I, I just pick one, Glasser. You know, I, I, I didn't get what's. Do you know about that? Well, I do. Yeah. Well, that's and, all I can say. choice theory that can't pick a name, right? And it, that something about that just irks me. <laughs> so, well, it was reality therapy, and then it was control. No, it was choice theory. No, control theory. theory. Then. Can then choice theory and then the new reality therapy. Uh, so yeah, it depends on, you know, I saw him on the, on a couple of book tours, you know, I saw him on the control theory book term tour and I have the one with the diagram in it on the inside that uh, when he was really kind of trying to turn it into cybernetics. Maybe it'll just become a symbol in the future. I don't know. Like Prince. Like Prince. Yeah. I was just going to say the same. Yeah, thanks everybody for sharing. I, Jen, I'm gonna uh, kind of go with you here. I've been I've been wondering about uh, Gestalt therapy for some time, um, especially not just in counseling but in counselor education. It, it seems like some of the the more experimental or experiential stuff that Gestalt therapy brings takes a lot of like 
set up uh setup and thought to to go along with it so i i think sometimes it's more like time consuming and, and involved and sometimes i i wonder if that's why um it's it's sometimes more more rare to see plus i think if students are exposed we were talking about the gloria tapes early i think if students are exposed early to fritz pearls then that can uh kind of jade people's view on gestalt therapy uh like very early as opposed to like what is as opposed to like answering the question like what does modern gestalt therapy look like so the next question do you set goals for yourself and do you accomplish them gina when i read this question i i read it and i thought you think i'm going to be around here a lot longer than is reasonable for me um i don't when i think of goals i think of someday i'll be an astronaut uh, I, I looking at my time clock reasonably, um, to-do lists is about as big as I get with goals. Um, they're all short-term goals. It's jumping from one project to another that, uh, I figure I can complete before I expire. Um, I've attempted to use productivity apps. Um, I have a whole bunch of productivity apps and I, I drift from one to another to to make lists of things I have to get done where the things I'm going to get done today get pushed till tomorrow and then tomorrow they get pushed to the next day eventually the planes land um you know but it's uh goals do I accomplish them uh not not a question for an old timer like me I don't know I I'm really goal oriented um, but maybe it's more like Marty said. I mean, there's times where I'm like, oh, okay, I'll grade four papers and then I'll reward myself with a cup of coffee, right? Like it, sometimes it has to be that granular for me to get to the destination of finishing the work for the week or, or whatever the case may be. But I, I think I am always kind of looking down the road to at where I want to be and, you know, what I think, uh, I want my career to look like at the end of it. Um, and, you know, some, some events that have happened recently have, have made me look really hard at that um, more so than I have in, in recent years. And I think in some ways it can be really, oh, I don't know. It's, I, I don't know if freeing is being dramatic, but it feels good to have that direction, to have that big thing in mind. Um, although, you know, admittedly, most of my days are set up around those kind of little goals that I, I celebrate in one weird way or another. Um, sometimes it's I get to grade videos and then I can grade papers and put music on like that. Like, I, I feel like it, it helps me to structure what it is I need to do in the moment. Um, and then I have those periods of reflection for the bigger things to say, OK, am I getting closer to that thing that I want this to be at the end? Um, I don't know if I always accomplish them. But, you know, I, I rewrite them a lot. And I feel like that part is really helpful. Ye yes. So, yes, I set goals for myself. I think over time, the, the older I've gotten, I have gotten better at accomplishing them, actually. And I'm thinking about, you know, well, first of all, just time management has gotten a lot better. Let me just say in the last 15 years or so, um, it's like not really an issue for me. It's more about just not being able to stop working towards whatever I'm, you know, all the little projects in the moment. Um, but I, I think more about goals as far as 
where do I want to be in life? And, you know, maybe it's job and academically situated, but I was actually thinking more, a lot of my goals was to find a way to be content in life, to, to be living a life that I'm enjoying or that I find meaningful. And I think that that's something where every day I'm just trying to make choices that will play into that. So hopefully at the end of everything, I'll look back and say, yes, Um, you know, because day to day things might not work out, things blow up in your face. And then it can be like really upset that, Oh, I'm such a loser. I didn't reach my goals, but that's not my goal overall. My goal is to, to be able to handle those things and, and learn, you know, just to kind of not let them stop me. So the big goals, that's what I answered. Yeah, I, I do this a lot. I have to, because it's, it's usually about what I'm excited about in the moment. And if I don't set goals, I'll just explode into kind of big picture stuff, go down wormholes and I won't, you know, so I'll, if it's like a paper I'm, I'm rolling on, I'll set, you know, months deadlines for how close do I want to be to submit it. And uh, I mean, I just do that and it helps me focus. When it's my time to die, I'll probably be, you know, trying to focus on being mindful. I'll be like, all right, probably got 30 seconds here. Let's just kind of let go and see what this is all about, you know. So, yeah, it helps me. Yeah, as one of the ADHD people in the room, like, yeah, goals are like necessary. I mean, and it's, you know, we've got the macro goals. We've got macro goals and we've got micro goals. So, you know, micro goals are kind of the day to day sometimes, but also the things that help me to chip away at the bigger things. And, you know, I've kind of like got like different, some of these things are written down, but others are just in my head about like, you know, sort of the overarching goals of like the macro stuff. Like I always think of the line from Jay-Z's song about, I'm not a businessman, I'm a business man. Um, and I, that's like kind of like my, like the biggest macro goal of like, even though I'm not a man, it's sort of like that idea of like, there's something bigger here of like creating that brand, creating that, personality of like who you are professionally speaking and you know what you're going to stand for what I'm going to stand for individually and how that's going to play out you know I I've gotten to the point now where I only set goals that are things I want to do rather than this like need to do things so I got to tell you like yeah I'm going to accomplish them because I'm setting the goals that I want to do rather than the things I feel like I need to do and I don't know like end of day, if it's not going the way that I want, I'm more apt to tweak the goal than I am to just scrap it all together or to force myself to do it. I mean, of course, we all had those moments of forcing ourselves to do it in the middle of a dissertation or whatever. But it's like, after that, it's like, man, F it, I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. Like I get to chart the course now because I got the paper in my hands. So I'm going to figure out like what that's going to look like so I can meet it and be with it. It's not always wine and roses, of course, but you know, finding that, finding that balance in there for the want is what feels right for me with goals because I'm not down for the needs anymore. Hey, Jen. Yeah. How did that little thumbs up in the bubble appear on your screen? Dude, I can't shut this shit off. I don't know what keeps happening with my Zoom, but you will see all this crap pop up in front of me and I can't turn it off. I've tried. And I talk with my hands. Yeah. (laughs) Let's see what that one does. I don't know. I love it. I like oh the laser gosh. show. No, I was yeah, like having a serious really nice. conversation <laughs> the other day and balloons went off on my Zoom. No joke. <laughs> oh my goodness. 
Um, this is a this was a challenging question for me. Um, I think sometimes I conceptualize goals as like really big picture, macro level, year plus long endeavor kind of stuff, right? Like building a meaning be the process of building a more meaningful life. What does that look like? And then what are, I don't know if it's sub goals or objectives or whatever, you know, the smaller steps that fit into the things that I want to do because I want to achieve the, the greater uh, goal that I have. Um, I, I've recently been experimenting with to-do lists and it hasn't, I haven't been able to kind of get motivated, scratching stuff off. It's just like, you know, sometimes uh, I sometimes I think everything's kind of like, I just prefer to keep everything up in my head and kind of just operate that way. Um, I mean, I do like lists sometimes, but I, I just, uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's definitely a, a more challenging question for me. It's certainly making me think about it a lot more. Okay. So I'm going to have an unpopular opinion. I, I don't do goals. Um, I, <laughs> Okay. So let me rewind. I did. I did do a lot of goals. I lived my life very much goal oriented. And I think a lot of us did, especially with like PhDs and masters and all of these things, right? Those are big goals. Those are lofty goals. And I think that the experience of accomplishing those goals, yes, I wanted those things. Yes, they were good things. Yes, there were those hard moments where you have to just do it. And at the end of the day, like, I still remember the very day that I got my PhD, defended my dissertation, the goal was accomplished, the thing was checked off, the box was checked, and then what? There's this feeling of like this void of like now I must set the next goal. I have to have the next thing. And what is the next thing? I don't even know. Like tenure maybe, but I didn't even know what job I was going to have. I mean there were so many different letdowns or um, – I don't know, disappointments with that, I guess. And so as a result now, as I've grown a little bit and as life continues to go on, I think that eliminating goals has made me think more about the actual lifestyle I want to lead and like the healthier habits that I want to engage in. And I'm a big list lady, big list lady. Like I have three lists sitting here, right here in front of me. So I'm like all about those little tiny goals throughout the day. And some of the bigger goals, I think that they just have to be thrown out the window um, because I think that establishing consistency and establishing like the healthier pattern of doing things is going to be way better than a freaking smart goal or anything like that. You know, there was an interview on NPR years ago. I heard it live when it was being done, and it was an interview with B.F. Skinner. And it was near the end of his life. And either he had just died or, you know, it just happened to be near the end of his life. And he was going deaf. I mean, as he was because of his age. And so every morning he'd get up at like five or six, go down into his office and turn on Wagner really loud because he was going deaf. And in part of the interview, the guy was saying, well, what are you working on now? He goes, well, I'm working on this paper here and this concept, and I forget what the concept was. And he goes, and if I get the paper done and it gets published, then I'm going to turn it into a book chapter. And if it goes from a book chapter, then I'm going to turn it into a whole book. And it was like he was setting these short-term goals knowing that he might not make it to a book chapter. 
And I just thought it was an interesting way to kind of approach what he knew was he was near his end of life. So switching gears a little bit, my question is, what qualities would you look for in a counselor for yourself? I feel like this is something I could do a chapter on, right? Because I, I, I think it's been a journey. I realize that, you know, and I'll make this generalization and, and you're welcome to argue it, but I think we're terrible clients as counselors ourselves. I think we're, we're immensely difficult to deal with. Um, at least I am. So I, I had to find somebody. I, if you answer a question with a question for me, uh, I'm going to I'm going to lose it. Right. Like I'm going to get irritated really fast. Uh, I need somebody who can keep up, uh, who can push back, who will call me out, who will um, press me. Right. Put the pressure on me and hold me accountable. Um, so I, I need I know what I need in those things. And I think I didn't for a long time. I thought what I needed was this soft, comfortable place to process, whatever. And it's just not what I needed. And, you know, I, I went through this and I'm thinking about it. And, you know, I have this talk that I have with my clients or my students about how you're not going to be for everybody. You know, you're just not there. There's times where it's just not going to work out because there's, it's not what they want or need, or, or you can't provide what they want or need. Um, and at the same time, I have this like rosy picture in my head of what it is I feel like I need. And it was the complete opposite of what I actually need it. So I, I feel like it's a journey it, and you have to know what it is truly that you need to be successful. And you you have to have that understanding, too, that, you know, there's a level of discomfort in it for me. There's a lot of trust and a lot of discomfort in that. And, and I feel like that's what makes it work for me that I can have both of those things. I can be in a place that's really uncomfortable that I need to traverse the process and have that feeling of safety at the same time. So that's what I had to look for. So again, for me, a chapter, a journey, a whole kind of big thing, but that's where I, that's where I landed in it and, and feel happy with, you know, where I've come to. That could be a very cool book, you know, just all these different chapters on that. <laughs> I think, I think it could be. Yeah. I'm just wondering if you find that out from the website, because that's, that's a lot, right? Like, I mean, that's the hard thing about all of this. And I'm like, listening to you describe it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, the damn websites don't say any of this crap, you know? It was trial and error, right? It was, yeah. it was like, I don't know how many counselors I went through and awkward conversations. I, I, I think I'd need to sit down and actually count. Um, But, you know, you don't get a lot of that. And I wish there was that, especially you you look at those profiles and they're like, well, I do all these things and I serve all these, you know, but it doesn't tell you how I approach this other than a a theoretical perspective. Like, I wish we had more of that biographical information or, or even just a video, right? I think that everyone else is going to answer with like, you know, some deeper types of things but I had some experiences a few years ago and I was so so I'm gonna look for qualities where they're not eating during session but like not even like asking if I can eat because I'm starving and I need to have a few bites of things like they're sneaking food in class like we're talking and they're just taking it tiniest bit and then when they think I move my head and no one can see but you're kind of just sucking on the food a little bit and trying not to move your mouth I mean, pretzels for crying out loud. This is so, so to look for someone who's not trying to, you know, sneak food 
during session. Um, and again, like counseling school, day one, basically like, don't make it about you. You know, that kind of gets drilled into your head and the same individual. Everything I said was like, oh, that's like me and my husband. And that's what we do. And like every other statement, it wasn't like a one off kind of thing of building rapport. It, it, it was like I was like, oh, so you get it. Awesome. You can tell me everything now. But it didn't really work out that way. So I, I think just even some of these basic skills that I was really I was taken aback by just like, wow, you're not for me. I've, I've had some wonderful uh, counselors that I I want someone who's playful and humorous and um, not, a, you know, will get will yank me down to roots when I'm all wings. You know, the current person I'm seeing, I went in and we were doing the presenting problem and I was like, well, relationship issues of course and then relationship and how work affects that relationship and then my relationships at work and those are faculty and admin and she's like whoa 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 my dear i can track you but i can't be with you at quite that speed i was like this is a person for me <laughs> i've discovered that um i'm probably way too judgmental to pick my own counselor um it's sort of like online dating like i can't do it because if i met somebody in real life and they told me that they don't like mushrooms I would probably think I liked you otherwise. We can figure this out. But if I see that on the profile, I'm like, nope, next. So for me, I need a recommendation from somebody that I feel like is similar enough personality wise to me. So like, you know, there's some of you on this show. If we were living in the same place and I said, hey, who do you recommend as a counselor? And I said, and my only limitation is I don't want them to have graduated from where I work or where I graduated because I don't want that much in common, you know? And you say, oh, you know, I used to see Joe Schmo and Joe Schmo is just, he's the bomb. Like he got my sense of humor. I'd be like, okay, we kind of have a similar sense of humor. I'll take a go at Joe Schmo. But if I go to Joe Schmo's website, I'm going to be like, you do CBT? Dude, I ain't down for some CBT. What is wrong with you people always doing CBT and you want to show your dog on your website? I don't want any of that, you know? So I need a recommendation from somebody that I trust. And I need to stay the hell off the internet. That's the bottom line. You know, I think um, I think for for me, it's very interesting um, to have gone to counseling for uh, a while before going into a program and finding out in the program about uh, right the idea that like asking too many questions or asking questions in a certain way is not a good thing. And I want my counselor to be asking me a lot of questions all the time, which is kind of unusual, I think. Um, I think that's just kind of like how I first got into counseling was my first counselor was a, like a lots of lots of different questions for me working on like, you know, he's very interested in like, I think how how I was thinking and everything. Um, and it made me be able to do some some self-reflection there. So I think and that's, I think something that's probably going to be pretty specific to me is like looking for a counselor like that. Um, I've really found that a counselor, uh, Dr. I, I know you said this, like a counselor with some humor, a counselor who doesn't take it, doesn't take the session too seriously. Um, I don't, I feel like I don't take myself too, too seriously. Um, and so when my counselor can kind of meet me at that energy, uh, I really do appreciate that. Um, I was a nightmare in college 
an absolute nightmare. Nobody wanted to talk to me. Nobody wanted to be my counselor. And I remember distinctly going through, blowing through a number of them. And uh, I was a pill. I was very difficult. Like Eric, you mentioned, I think a lot of us maybe are the worst clients. And I I know I was. Um, so when I went to Sant Singh, he was this old, very elderly Indian man. And I went to his house and someone had recommended him. And I walked down into his basement and I was like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever been a part of. And I sit down on his couch and he like called me out, told me like it was. And I remember being like, I hate this man. I don't want to hear this. Like I'm this cool college athlete, whatever, all this stuff. And suddenly I, you know, walked away from that first session, thought a little bit about the things he had said. And I showed up again and I took that risk and <laughs> it just worked out. So I know that I need someone who is going to call me on my shit and who is going to tell me like it is and who's not going to be afraid to confront me. Um, and that after meeting with Sant Singh and having him as my counselor for a while, that's the reason I went into this field. Um, it was a fabulous experience. And uh, I still think about him and that time. So, Gina, you, I think uh, your story is fantastic because it was exactly what I was trying to get out was that, that I hate this and I'll be back next week. <laughs> right. Yes. Like, it works. It's not comfortable. It's not great, but it it does something. Mm-hmm. That's the feeling that that I get when it works. Yeah, you know, and I recommend to students and to people who are looking for counselors who are somewhat counselor wise, go see somebody who has an orientation that's different than yours, or that you think is going to push different buttons in you because your, you know, your what you're drawn to as an orientation is probably where your strengths are and where you need your work done is probably where your weaknesses are. So go to somebody who you normally wouldn't think to go to. Uh, so I'm glad that you got that experience, Gina. Um, this question comes because recently um, I was looking for a counselor. It's time for a, what I call a 50,000-mile checkup. Um uh, over the last two, three years, it's been my brother's death, a colleague's death, my cancer diagnosis and treatment, and then some stuff through the holidays that have been really difficult. So it was a gut punch. And I thought, I need to go see somebody and, and acted on it. So the first thing I did was try to look for a male therapist over the age of 60. Don't exist. Um, the one I found does exist. But... I went through pages and pages and searching and searching, and I would like somebody that was person-centered because I have things to tell and I'd like to be listened to well, and hopefully it will help elevate my understanding of the situation, and not DBT, CBT, EMDR. And I can't tell you, looking through ads, how many people talk about being DBT, CBT, or EMDR. Nobody's listening to people anymore. Then the other criteria is they can't be past or current students. And if you've been teaching in an area for 23 years, there's a lot of past students. And so I did find somebody, a gentleman 70 years old. 
person-centered focus, some acceptance and commitment therapy, and um, I think it'll be good. I think I'll get my, my tires rotated and my oil changed and everything I need that I get. So we have one final shot question. The type of driving that gives you road rage. Oh, don't drive that close. I will brake check you. Being brake checked. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the kind where they just insist on not letting you pass or get around, but they'll just speed up to get with you anytime you can even have a shot at getting around. They just they just want you to go slow like them. You know, for me, it's bullying, bullying types of things. Nowadays, I really try to practice compassionate driving. It's this thing I got into where you pretend there's someone you care deeply about in every car. And But back in the day, when I'd see someone rearing up on someone else's bumper, I'd rear up on their bumper. I'd be like, who's the asshat now? You know, I'm living, I live in an area of compassionate driving. It's really, it's really weird because, you know, in Milwaukee, everybody wants to run you off the road or kill you. So I come into this like compassionate driving circle and all of a sudden, like these people want to come up and like get on your, on your bumper and start flashing their lights at you. The minute they do it, I'm like, mm, you are not from around here. You you need to learn in Massachusetts. I'm expecting to see Massachusetts on that license plate, you know? So it's funny, like anybody who's aggressive now, I'm just sort of like, you know, I, I used to get really mad and now I'm just sort of like, I'm going to drive like everybody else and be really cool about it. So I think it's the aggressive drivers. They still irritate me, especially in my own city, because we don't do that here. Um, but they don't really bring about road rage anymore. My road rage is stimulated by my own bullshit. Like anytime I'm like feeling underlying stress, that's when I know it because I start yelling at people for stupid shit, like not using their turn signal. That seems to always be my big trigger, you know? You're not using your turn signal. And I'm yelling at them. I did it today. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm stressed about the grant. Please use your turn signals. Thank you. Okay, mine comes with a little bit of a backstory. So I lived on the south side of Chicago and uh, really dense populated area, street parking and like bad street parking. So like my life was ruled by parking situations. So anytime I would leave, I would have to like time it to make sure that I could get a parking spot when I got back. Otherwise, you could be circling for close to an hour or two. So the biggest biggest road rage that I have ever experienced is when you follow someone to their car, like you're inching behind them and you're feeling like a total creeper and you're just like going along at like three miles an hour as they're walking and you pull up right behind their car and they get in their car and then they sit in it for about 45 minutes. Like, are you kidding me? What are you doing in there? What could you possibly be doing in there? You know that three people are waiting for this spot in their life. Their entire schedule depends on this. Yeah, just tell me if you're leaving. Just communicate. That's all. Gina, didn't you place folding chairs out in the parking spaces when you left to make sure there was a space for you when you came back? Oh, there was totally lots and lots of bullshit that went down. Lawn chairs, parking chairs. I know that's the Chicago. That's the Chicago. It's the Chicago summer. way. It's yeah. the Chicago way. Um, mine are men with little dick energy and big trucks that tail you uh, less than a car length at high speeds, uh, twenty miles over the speed limit, and I'm in the left lane, and some guys behind me, and I speed up to try and get over in the right lane to let him pass, and he speeds up with me. Um, 
Yeah. That's my point of road rage. Um, so thanks for the firing squad. All of us together tonight. Eric, Jen, Stephanie, Gina, Elliot, and Mitch. Look for some of these characters on their podcasts on the podtalk.net. You can find out more about them at circularfiringsquad.net. Make sure to check out the Tech Savvy Professor podcast hosted by Eric and myself. Our theme music is from Menage a Quad, Real Swing Chet. That's it for this episode of Circular Firing Squad. Ready, fire, aim.